You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. I want to talk about something that I've spoken about before, but it's uh, becoming a more and more of an issue. Uh, keep in mind that the Arab population of the state of Israel is roughly 20%, and there is a tremendous amount of violence in Arab society. It's criminal and it's tragic. Murders among Israel's Arab sector surpassed a hundred mark since the start of the year. With a homicide figure like that in mid-June, this is going to be a very dark year no matter what happens in the next six months of 2023. The numbers aren't going to drop, obviously. These numbers, murders in the Arab community in Israel, are alarming, and the stories are heartbreaking. Families have been destroyed, communities have been torn apart, attacks have taken place in homes, in streets, playgrounds, schoolyards, workplaces, in broad daylight and at night. No one feels safe in the Israeli-Arab community. Now, part of the tragedy is that although many of the victims are completely innocent, they are bystanders in the wrong place at the wrong time, or incidentally related to the wrong family, in other cases, the picture is murkier, as killers themselves killed to avenge the murders. Now, this appalling statistic marks a huge jump from last year. And last year, it was bad enough. 109 people were killed in the Arab sector in 2022, and many more were wounded. So the background to these murders is varied. In some cases, it stems from organized crime and loan sharks. In others, it's a result of clan warfare. And in too many incidents, quite common, is the result of femicide. Family honor often cited as the justification. The uh, it, it, it's interesting. The uh, uh, an eight-year-old Druze woman, Druze, not not a Muslim, a Druze woman, was murdered apparently because she was openly lesbian. Although family members swore they did not know who would want to kill her, it soon became known that two of her brothers had served prison terms for threatening her. So many Arab leaders discussing the crime wave note that uh, uh, unlike among the Jewish majority, most murders within the Arab sector remain unsolved. They often blame a lack of police motivation to act. But there is a problem that they're more reluctant to acknowledge, which is People are too scared to cooperate with the police in case it makes them the next target victim. That, that's, it's a very difficult problem in the Arab society in Israel. Last week, Netanyahu held an emergency meeting with ministers and others, and he called for the Shim Bet, which is Israel's security agency, 
to be brought in to help tackle the violence in the Arab sector. The bill to bring in the Shin Bet was rejected by the Ministerial Committee for Legislation because of opposition of the Attorney General from the Shin Bet itself. The Attorney General is apparently concerned about legality of using on Israeli citizens the tools it employs to fight terrorism, while the Shimbet appears to be worried that, apart from diverting manpower from the fight against terror, aspects of its work methods could be detrimental if revealed. The Shimbet, in a very large extent, is a Israel security agency, is a secret organization. We don't know exactly how they operate. Now, those who oppose Shimbet involvement say it runs the risk of appearing to turn the problem into an anti-terrorism issue, but it's really simply a domestic one, crime. Although there is a clear link between the accessibility of arms and crime and terror, several Arab mayors have indeed asked for the Shimbet assistance because they believe that desperate times call for desperate measures. Now, using a security agency in the civilian sphere is very rare. However, it's not unprecedented. In the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, the Shimbet was employed to use phone surveillance systems to help track the spread of the virus and warn people in contact with confirmed coronavirus carriers. So the Prime Minister has announced the establishment of a steering committee to draw up a multi-prompt plan to tackle what he describes as a scourge. Crime in the Arab population is a scourge, but the government's actions need to be backed by cooperation from within the Arab community itself. For years, Arab members of Knesset and mayors and community leaders have been opposed to building police stations in Arab towns and villages, and they have ostracized those who join the Israeli police or other security forces. Police operating the Arab sector have come under attack, physical attack, and police stations in Arab areas have been damaged. There is a huge sense of mistrust and lack of deterrence, and it's pervasive. This has to change. The agricultural theft and protection rackets have become a plague, which affects Arabs and Jews. Not only political and social leaders need to speak out, but also religious leaders must do, do so. Murder is a sin in all religions, including Islam. Imams, spiritual leaders of the Muslim community, and other religious figures must use their influence to remind their followers there's nothing glorious about taking a human life. There needs to be a return to honoring what's called the Sulcha system, which is a traditional mediation and conflict resolution. At the same time, care must be taken that using these communal efforts to end a feud does not mean the perpetrator of serious crimes would avoid facing justice in the civil ju- justice system. 
Local customs cannot supersede law and order. Incidentally, in the past, known bigamists have been served as uh, members of Knesset on Arab lists. Bigamists have been in the Knesset. Lawmakers who were flagrantly violating the law unchallenged. So the crackdown on criminal gangs and protection rackets must come from within the community itself. With backing from a greater police presence, schools need to address the issue rather than avoiding discussing the murders. The program needs to be drawn up by educators, psychologists, and other specialists, particularly from within the Arab community itself, educating against revenge killings and honor killings. Now, at the most basic level, local leaders and religious figures and ordinary citizens should let it be known that they won't attend weddings where there is a celebratory shooting in the air. Too many guns available. So the the National Security Minister in his election campaign focused on returning governance, particularly in the Negev and the Galilee where there are large Arab population and he has repeated demand to set up a National Guard answerable to him aimed at fighting crime in the Arab sector. That the, his suggestions for boosting police recruitment uh, are, 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 are not wrong. It's awkward. Focusing on the crime rate in the Israeli Arab sector is often dismissed as being racist. It is not racist. On the contrary, the vast majority of Arab Israelis, 20% of the population, are law-abiding citizens. Their personal safety should be a basic right. It would be racist to ignore the homicide rate of Arabs in a sort of live-and-let-live approach. There is no excuse for murder. It's time to declare war on this kind of violence. That declaration against violence must come from within the Israeli-Arab community itself because it is suffering. It is a form of domestic terrorism, and it's something that has to be stopped. Murders in the Arab sector, 20% of the Israeli population, is something that must be stopped. It doesn't get big headlines but it's very real, and it is a danger to all of Israeli society. I want to go on now to a different subject, and again, it's one that doesn't get big headlines, but I think it's important, and it has to do with our relationship with the United States. Uh, uh, the Secretary of State under Donald Trump was Mike Pompeo, and he declared that Washington did not view Israeli settlements as is legal. Uh, And in 2020, the U.S. removed territorial limitations in the Binational Science Foundation, Binational Industrial Research and Development Foundation, and Binational Agricultural Research and Development Fund. These are agreements that uh, the United States has with Israel, the United States invests in research being performed in Israel. 
Now, under the Biden administration, I'm sorry, under the Trump administration, this uh, the financial aid and research even went to research projects that were taking place over the green line and in, in, uh, in institutions that were in those areas that were conquered by Israel in 1967. Like there's a big university in the city of Ariel, which is right smack in the middle of Samaria. They get a lot of money from Amer- these American organizations to do research, which is helpful to the Israel and the United States. Now, the, now the Biden administration sticks to what has been the more typical view of Israeli settlement activity in recent decades, and the Biden administration condemns settlement activity. Now, A State Department spokesman last week said its new guidance circulated to relevant government agencies stated that engaging in scientific and technological cooperation with Israel in geographic areas which come under the administration of Israel after June 5, 1967, and to remain subject to final status negotiations is inconsistent with U.S. policies. In other words, the Americans are saying we will not support research projects being undertaken in areas that Israel conquered in 1967. Now, the Biden administration went on to say this guidance is simply reflective of a long-standing American position reaffirmed by this administration that the ultimate disposition of the geographic areas which came under the administration of Israel after June 5, 1967 is a final status matter and that we are working toward a negotiated two-state solution in which Israel lives in peace and security alongside a viable Palestinian state. This is essentially reverting through U.S. policies to long-standing pre-2020 geographic limitations on U.S. support for activities of the Binational Foundations, unquote. In other words, the American government is saying we will not support research undertaken over the green line. Now, at the same time, even though it did this, The State Department, again, and I quote, said we strongly value scientific and technological cooperation with Israel, which he considered to be the startup nation. So cooperation with Israel continues, unquote. But they're cutting off funds or any research being done over the green line. So our foreign minister said that he opposed the decision and thinks it's mistaken and pointed out that in similar situations in the past, Israel increased funding for research in Judea, Judea and Samaria so that those institutions don't use, uh, lose out. <coughs> interesting, interesting, the former U.S. ambassador to Israel, David Friedman, who was the ambassador under Trump, said that the agreements were amended in 2020 after a thorough review of the highest levels of both governments in order to permit both nations, the U.S. and Israel, 
the more freely engage in scientific research and development. Refusing to honor these agreements, is, which is what the Biden administration is doing, is wrong, both as a matter of policy and as a matter of contract. And the, uh, what the United States is doing now, and again, I quote the former ambassador, David Friedman, because what he says is true. He said, make no mistake, in unilaterally returning to the flawed language of the old agreements, the United States government is itself is engaging what is known as BDS. And that is simply wrong. It is really wrong for the American government to do such a thing. So what they are doing is boycotting Israeli academic institution based solely on their postal code. Everyone loses here, especially the residents of the affected areas, including both Israeli and Palestinians. So the, uh, the former ambassador under Trump came out forcibly against what the Biden administration is doing, cutting off the funds for development of ideas and research over the green line. And by the way, the American Senator Ted Cruz accused the Biden administration of anti-Semitic discrimination against Israel. Joe Biden and the Biden administration officials are pathologically obsessed with undermining Israel. This is what Cruz said. And he went on to say, since day one of their administration, they are launched campaigns against our Israeli allies. This new boycott of Israeli Jews is yet another example. The Biden administration defends funding science research in places like Wuhan with the Chinese Communist Party, but the discriminating against and banning cooperation with Jews based on where they live. Now, Israel has repeatedly entered into similar agreements with the European Union, and uh, which also includes geographic limitations. But the very fact that the American administration is now cutting off funding for research, research which is good for everybody, for Americans and for Israelis and for the world, the American government is cutting off funds for research beyond the green line. That is simply something which is really untenable and not expected, and it speaks poorly of the Biden administration. So, again, this is one of those things that doesn't get big headlines. It's really, really under the radar. But a lot of money is involved, a lot of research is involved, and a lot of good that come out of it is involved and won't happen if the proper funding is not allowed. And the, the fact that the Biden administration is now curtailing funds simply because of the location where the research is taking place is simply wrong. It is a political act and one that makes no sense. It makes sense perhaps politically, but essentially the American government Government is acting like the BDS. They're cutting off funds that could help the entire world simply because the funds would be spent in the location that the United States does not agree with. They think that Israel should not be there. 
the, the uh, idea of some kind of settlement with the Palestinians is way beyond the horizon of the future. And, and to cut off funds now, I think, is simply wrong. It's a mistake by the American administration. I think a bad mistake, because it's bad for everybody if good, solid research isn't carried out nowhere, no matter where the location is. I'll be back after the break. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. Be smart. Listen to Israel News Talk Radio in the background while you work and get the latest news and commentary from Israel. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. Want real answers to the big questions of life? Who am I? Why am I here? How can I find lasting happiness? If God is good, why is the world so bad? Don't miss Soul Talk with Rabbi David Aaron. Revealing, inspiring, empowering. Thursdays on Israel News Talk Radio. You're back again with Jay Shapiro. In this segment of the program, I want to touch upon uh, several items. First of all, last year, Israel arms exports totaled $12.5 billion, 10% more than the previous year, which had that year, the year before, had soared 30% from the, the year before that. All this was reported by the Defense Ministry. Israel is a major exporter of military items. Israel makes almost anything that enters a battlefield. Tanks, jets, corvettes, missiles, interceptors, radars, aerial defense systems, naval missiles, cyber products, avionics, and drones. That is a very impressive list. Foreign demand is such that only a quarter of Israel's made products remain in Israel, and half of last year's export contracts were worth more than $100 million each. I used to work for Israel Aircraft until I retired years ago, and I saw at that time how much we were building and exporting how often other countries, including especially the United States, were cooperating with us on development of weapon systems. Lurking behind these figures are trends that are happening around the world and Israeli realities. Now, what's happening around the world right now? The war in Ukraine revived demand for conventional military goods. That includes fighter jets, battle tanks, artillery batteries, and even what's called suicide drones, and also optical equipment, anti-aircraft radars, and missiles. Now, for example, what's happening in Europe uh, here we are, you know, all these years after the Cold War, we have a situation where the Eastern European countries are very much afraid of Russia, and Poland, for example, is negotiating with the United States to buy up to $100 billion 
the worth of high-mobility artillery systems and $4 billion worth of tanks. And after they signed a $6 billion deal for South Korean howitzers, <coughs> Finland, <coughs> Finland uh, increased by $134 million in order for South Korean self-propelled artillery guns. Romania raised its defense budget from 2% to 2.5% of the GDP, and now they're requesting American Abrams, Abrams tanks. Poland doubled its military spending. Latvia is buying American medium-range naval strike missiles. And this list goes on and on. And uh, there was a recent a Paris air show, of course, to which Israel attended. The... When the Cold War ended, global defense spending began declining. They were talking about around the, about 1990. Now we're more than 30 years later. That we're being, we've been there's global terrorism, at, which has caused this trend to be reversed so much so that European defense spending swelled over the past decade by 30 percent, and and uh, European defense spending now is relatively higher than its level when the Cold War ended in 1989. So to make make a long story short, war is back in business. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, what does this mean for Israel? The uh, Israel remains a fixture of defense industries. Like it or not, arms are a byproduct of Israel history. Israel would never have needed arms if not for the fact we're surrounded by neighbors who wanted to destroy us, and you would never have become an arms manufacturer if not for the difficulties it meant buying arms abroad. The uh, the uh, I, the Israel air defense industries began back in 1952, which is now a defense giant. I work there. It has 15,000 employees, and it has $4.5 billion in sales. So uh, the last century's big armored battles in which thousands of Israeli crewmen were killed uh made the IDF seek a tank that would protect its crew better than other tanks. Now that's how Israel ended up by creating its own tank, the Merkava, the only tank in the world, by the way, with the engine in the front. All other tanks in the world have their engine in the back. So Israel exporters has been exporting arms since the late 1950s. I remember when I first came with Aliyah, the big thing that Israel made was the Uzi submachine gun, and I, an Israel aircraft, and I worked with something called the Kfir, the Kfir fighter jet, but uh, we were forced to stop that because the Americans who were supporting it financially uh, saw it as a uh, competition to jets being made in America. Now, the uh, the more the Israeli economy matured, the more arms share and national income shrank. To uh, 
the uh, arms uh, income is like 70% of Israel's income today. What's new are two mind-boggling developments that in earlier years would have sounded like their imagination. Right now, $3 billion, 20% of Israel's recorded arms exports were, interestingly enough, 24% went to Arab states, namely Morocco, Bahrain, and the United Arab Emirates. So that's interesting. $3 billion, 24% of Israel's record arms export is going to Arab states. That's one thing. The second thing that the, uh, in Warsaw, not far from the monument to the Warsaw Ghetto, Polish generals decided to equip a fleet of 1,000 infantry combat vehicles with a spike missile made by Rifael, an Israeli company. The, uh, in Holland, not far from Anne Frank's house, Dutch officials recently decided to buy $300 million worth of, of rocket launchers made by Elbit, an Israeli company located in Haifa. So Holland is buying from, uh, from, uh, uh, from Israel, and so is, the, uh, and so is uh, many uh, Arab countries. It's unbelievable. Bratislava, a company most people can't find on the map, is buying Israeli radars, is buying armored personnel carriers, and is buying spike missiles. It's interesting. The German government decided to pay $3.8 billion to buy Arrow 3 missiles that intercept hypersonic ballistic missiles. These are made in Israel. In other words, the state of the people that a previous, a previous Germany resolved to annihilate was just asked by a different Germany today to help shield the German people from a prospective nuclear attack. The, so you, you can say the following, the arms race, of course, in general, the fact that there is an arms race is unfortunate. But in terms of the arms race vis-a-vis -vis Israel, Israel, which hardly had any arms when the country came into being 75 years ago, is now a major exporter of arms to countries, including countries in Europe, in which Jews were murdered during the Second World War. So... The, uh, if anything about the manufacture, trade, and deployment of arms one can be happy about is the fact that Israel uh, is a major exporter of arms. So this provides money to Israel. It provides working places for Israeli employees. So the arms race is almost by definition definition and not a good thing and it certainly it it, it 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 really isn't a good thing there's no two ways about it but it turns out that israel is is a major um uh i don't want to use the word profiteer that has a nasty uh, sound to it 
Israel is among those who are benefiting for the by the arms race. The arms race is going to go on no matter what. These, unfortunately, are the facts of life. In the meantime, Israel is benefiting from it, benefiting from it. So, in a sense, it's a it's a uh, an unfortunate fact of life, but we are benefiting from it. So, we have to take things the way they are. Now, I want to talk about something which is under the headlines. But uh, it's part of reality here. There have been more than 100 shooting attacks in Judea and Samaria this year. The uh, there were 200 last year, and the uh, the terror wave is now something that is increasing and needs to be defeated. The uh, question is, why is, is this happening? Why the number of taxes is consistently on the rise? Now, it, it could answer simply that the Palestinians hate Israel as they want to kill them. That, that's the answer. No, there's nothing we can do. It's part of their educational system. The uh, the the Israeli army is opposed to a large-scale operation right now in Judea and Samaria. The uh, last week, the army went into the city of Jenin uh, and the uh, to get some terrorists there, and a large bomb went off next to a military vehicle reminding commanders of past battles in Gaza and Lebanon. It's a grave escalation that needs to be confronted. The, uh, one, one of the things that Israel has been doing is attacking Islamic Jihad cells using drones, not using troops. What is happening now is an extension of the past year that saw the Israeli army being forced to increase its efforts to dismantle the new terrorist infrastructure. Because what's happening is Abu Mazen, the guy who took over after Arafat, is simply weak, and other groups inside the Palestinian areas are, are raising their heads and you have a tremendous number of arms being smuggled into that area. The, uh, the, the even moderate Israelis are calling for a large-scale operation. For now, the Israeli army is pushing back against these calls. It does not yet see the benefit of a large-scale operation. The uh, it, it, these are, there are, this is a very difficult situation for Israel. There are three primary reasons. First, there's no disconnecting the political and social environment in Judea and Samaria from the escalation of violence. There is no political horizon. The Palestinian Authority has been inclined for years 
It does not look like any change in the near or even the long-term future. In other words, there is no government in the Palestinian area. Instead, young Palestinians see are just they hear about rapprochement with Saudi Arabia, Arabia, and they see Israel making agreements with other Muslim countries, and they see themselves being left behind. So a large-scale operation might bring some quiet for a period of time, but it is not in any way a comprehensive solution. That area taken over by Israel in the Six-Day War has become a powder keg. Another reason has to do with the President Mahmoud Abbas of the Palestinian Authority. Recent months have seen increasing reports about his health and the succession process. There is no clear next in line. The Palestinian Authority is not a democracy, and Israel is afraid that when Abbas passes away, or simply decides to resign, the situation will escalate. Israel prefers to try and contain the situation while it can. Another reason is that Prime Minister Netanyahu knows that the way you start an operation is almost never the way you finish it. You start something, particularly a military operation, you have no idea how it will end. There are complications, things go wrong, mistakes are made. Israel today is in a very delicate situation. On the one hand, it's trying to advance a possible diplomatic deal with Saudi Arabia, and on the other hand, it's trying to get the Biden administration to increase its demands in in. Uh, in the nuclear deal the Americans are trying to make with Iran. Iran's major target, if it has a nuclear weapon, is Israel, and we cannot allow that to happen. So the uh, this is a very, very difficult situation. The violence in Judea and Samaria is not going away anytime soon. And our army will need to continue to crack down and increase its counterterrorism operations. So that we, the government needs to focus on figuring out what to do. We are holding in our hands a, a time bomb. We, the, we, Israel was forced to take over Judea and Samaria back in 1967. We tried during the 1990s to make some kind of a deal with the uh, Palestinians. They would set up their own government. That failed. We today are in a very, very sensitive situation. I, of course, am not a politician. I'm not a diplomat. I don't have a solution. I would like to think somewhere, somehow, there are those thinking about a solution. We, we made terrible mistake, mistakes in the past, but we are stuck with the situation, and, and uh, it's a delicate one. It's a sensitive one. The main thing that our government must do is protect its citizens, that they have to do no matter what. How they do this 
whether by a large-scale operation or by use of decoys or what have you, it is a very delicate situation, and we have to realize that. The funny part about it is, and of course I don't mean funny haha, is when you spend a day in Jerusalem, you would never know about this. I, I travel around Jerusalem every day. I live in Jerusalem. We go out, and it's a nice, it appears like a nice, normal city. We see a lot of Arabs. You go into a drugstore, most of the uh, the people behind the counter are Arab women, as a matter of fact. Arab doctors who go to a coffee shop were served by Arabs behind the counter. Life appears to be quite normal. Unfortunately, it isn't. And this is the reality of our time. I don't like to be uh, sound pessimistic. I just sort of uh, to bring out to the listeners that we're living on a powder keg. And hopefully our government is thinking of ways to reduce the tension and to reduce the danger. But it's there. I'll be back after the break. Many people would like to learn more about viruses and pandemics. Tel Aviv University is partnering with an online learning service called edX.org to provide a professional certificate program entitled Viruses and How to Beat Them from Cells to Pandemics. Students will learn the principles of living organisms, how information flows from genes to produce proteins, how viruses infect our bodies, and understand the process of scientific investigation. The program discusses pros and cons of vaccines and how COVID-19 became the third pandemic this century, as well as the biology of coronavirus in humans and animals. The self-paced program should take about two months to complete, studying two to three hours per week. You'll receive a professional certificate for your efforts. For more information on the high-tech world today, visit IsraelTechTalk.com. With your INTR Tech Minute, I'm Bob Aiello. You're back with uh, Jay Shapiro. In the previous portion of the program, I said a few words about uh, Arab society in Israel. I want to say a few more words. The the establishment of radical Islamic groups like Hamas and Islamic Jihad and their participation in the armed struggle against Israel uh, was the best thing that happened to the Palestinian people since 1948, believe it or not, by a public opinion poll shows uh, it was published two weeks ago. This poll was conducted by a Ramallah-based Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research, and it also showed that Palestinian support for the two-state solution remains as low as it was six months ago. Support for a two-state solution stands at less than 30%, and opposition stands around 70%. So, in addition, more than 50% of the Palestinians believe that the armed struggle against Israel is the most effective means to end the Israeli occupation and to build a Palestinian state. A little over 20% say supported They supported achieving these goals through negotiations, and another 20-some percent preferred popular resistance. Now, 
This poll was taken of, of about 1,270 Palestinians who were interviewed face-to-face. It has about a 3% margin of error. Now, when they were asked what has been the most positive or the best thing that happened to the Palestinian people since what they called the catastrophe, the Nakba, that's the term used by Palestinians to describe the establishment of Israel in 1948, the Nakba, the largest percentage, almost 25%, said it was the establishment of Islamic movements such as Hamas and Islamic Jihad and their participation in the armed struggle against Israel. So there is a, a very large percentage of the Arab people, the Palestinians, who believe the armed struggle against Israel is essentially the right thing to do. A little over 20% of the respondents said the eruption of the first intifada back in 1987 and the second intifada back in 2000 was the best thing that happened to the Palestinians. And about 18% said the establishment of the PLO in the early 1960s was the best thing that happened to the Palestinians. So when they were asked to describe the standing of Israel on its 75th anniversary, 42% of the Arabs said it was one of the most powerful countries in the world economically and militarily. In other words, they agreed that Israel is strong. That another, But again, another 35% said Israel is weak and fragmented and on the verge of collapse. And two-thirds of the Arabs polled, like 66%, believe that Israel will not celebrate its 100th anniversary. And the vast majority, over 70%, expressed support for the formation of armed groups. More than 85% of the respondents said the Palestinian Authority does not have the right to arrest members of the armed groups to prevent them from carrying out attacks against Israel. Now, it's interesting also the results show that Hamas leader Ismail Khania remains more popular than Palestinian Authority President Muhammad Abbas. If presidential elections were held today, Khania would receive 50% of the vote. And, by the way, and he's in jail, right? He's in jail for killing the Jews. The, uh, the, uh, it's interesting. They like, they support the people who are in jail. Uh, according to the poll, 80% of the Palestinian people want Abbas to resign. So uh, he's not too popular. Israel set him up. Actually, they set up Arafat. He took over Arafat. But uh, uh, that, that was up to now, I was speaking about the Palestinian Authority. In fact, most of the people in the Palestinian Authority would like to see armed struggle against Israel. That's one thing. It's not too good to hear. Now, however, there is another... Uh, subject which is of interest i think and uh, that's the following talk about the arabs living in israel inside the state of israel there is a tremendous amount of violence among the arabs who are living within the state of israel they're israeli citizens the uh, the violence in the arab israeli community has reached an all-time high 
Over 100 Arab Israelis have been killed in crime-related incidents since the start of this year. But to put this into perspective, the Abraham Initiative, which monitors crime and fatalities in the Arab-Israeli community, community, reported this year's death toll from violent crime has tripled since last year. I'm talking about Israeli Arabs. Unfortunately, this is not a new phenomenon. There's been a persistent rise in violent crime that's affected Arab-Israeli communities for years. Well, very feeble attempts have been made by law enforcement to confront these issues. Last month, the Knesset's National Security Committee reported 500 Arab Israelis were killed in Israel between 2018 and 2020. The Times of Israel reveals that this violence stems from various factions, including family conflicts, turf wars between various gangs, and there's a scourge of violence in the Arab society against women. Very bad. Now, despite this, this violence, Being a growing concern, Arab-Israeli communities have endured years of neglect with nobody taking action to stop this. Arab-Israeli community leaders are blaming the police for not taking action to deal with these issues. They also blame Prime Minister Netanyahu for not tackling the violence. We've reached a point now where... With these alarming numbers, the government no longer has a choice and it has to take action. In response to the recent murders, Netanyahu decided to form a committee with Arab lawmakers to discuss possible solutions. And Netanyahu also announced a new plan to involve Israel's insured internal security agency, which is called the Shimbet to target the criminals. However, the problem is that ever since Netanya announced this plan, Arab politicians and community leaders and the Shimbet itself have shown little support. <coughs> you have to realize the Shimbet's main objective, its job, is to investigate, prevent, and thwart ter- ter- terrorism internally. This agency, the Shimbet, rarely gets involved in matters of public crime, except um, uh, during the coronavirus and uh, coronavirus. And in May 2021, it was a Gaza conflict where it had to get involved with the riots and violence rooted in uh, nationalistic tendencies. Reports state that having the agency deal with isolated crime issues could drain the resources from combating terror. In other words, the Shimbet is supposed to combat terror. It's not simply part of the police to combat uh, criminal actions. This job is meant for the police, which is facing ongoing issues, including a workforce shortage terrible salaries, and horrible hours. So Arab-Israeli leaders have argued that involving the Shin Bet will further threaten the basic rights of Israel's Arab population, 
and to allow intrusive methods that invade human rights. The Shimbet is designed to work against uh, people trying to destroy the state of Israel. It's not simply a police group. The Shimbet methods are meant for Israel's enemies, not for Israeli citizens. There are no quick fixes in bringing down crime in the Arab sector. Uh, and uh, instead of resorting to the shim bed, the only way to fix the problem will probably require a series of steps. Now, the previous government, the Bennett-Lapid government, budgeted about 2.5 billion uh, Israeli shekels for stopping violent crime and drew up a, a approach to tackle the issues. They, they set up a plan called the Safe Track Plan, which included steps aimed at dismantling organized crime, targeting the sources of funds for organized crime, cracking down on arms smuggling, strengthening governance in the Arab sector, and building trust and increasing cooperation with the Arab local authorities. Unfortunately, this plan really never came into being. And you have to keep in mind that Israel cannot ignore the desperate needs of 20% of her population. The Arabs are 20% of Israeli population, and they have terrible crime. According to experts, Arab gangs and criminal organizations have accumulated significant amounts of illicit weaponry over the past 20 years and are involved in drug Drugs, arms, human trafficking, prostitution, extortion, money laundering. So ignoring violence in the Arab community is not just wrong on a moral basis. It'll put the rest of Israeli society at risk. Violence in the, in the Arab society is a danger to all of Israel. Because crime in the Arab sector won't stay there. It'll also bleed into the rest of the country. Our government and police should not wait until more innocent Arabs are shot to death on the streets or when the violence, the violence could eventually seep into Tel Aviv. We have to do better in the Arab sector for, for, for all of Israelis. Terrible violence in a 20% sector of the population is something which we cannot, cannot allow to continue. It is a very serious problem. It doesn't get big headlines, but it's real. And it, it could uh, really work away at our domestic society. Something has to be done about it. Budget-wise and thinking-wise, to stop and cut, or at least cut down, the violence and the and the activities, the criminal activities in the, in the Arab section of this population, which is 20% of the population. Something must be done about it. Now, I want to go on to a different topic, totally different, but something which, uh, again, it's one of those things that's under the headlines, and it really should be known. The the United Jewish-Israeli Appeal of Great Britain has issued a new policy requiring anything that's funded by them, groups, 
that uh, are funded by the, them that wish to visit sites over the green line have to ask for special approval. Now, let me make this clear. UJIA, the Jewish United Jewish Israeli Appeal, which funds uh, people to come and visit Israel, that anyone who wishes to visit sites has to get special approval if they're over the sites over the green line. But keep in mind, sites over the green line include, for example, the Western Wall and the Old City of Jerusalem, which is really a, a, a radical thing to do. So this change apparently came in response to an incident that occurred when two per to our participants from a, a, um, a birthright Israeli group uh, that was supported by the United Jewish uh, Israel Appeal of Great Britain pulled out of the tour due to accommodation issues within Israel proper. These issues resulted in an unplanned visit uh, in Kibbutz Al-Mug, which is located near the Dead Sea and borders Jordan, and it's situated beyond the Green Line. So what happens is that the Green Line, and keep in mind, the Green Line was the line between Israel and, uh, and uh, Jordan back until 1967. So the Green Line poses challenges for some tour providers concerning visits to significant sites like Jerusalem's Old City, the Western Wall, and other historically and culturally important areas for Jewish tours. The actual Green Line marked the 1948 Armistice Line, which ceased to exist when Jordan violated the Armistice by attacking Israel in June 1967, and Israel conquered the whole area west of the Jordan River. The uh, that the uh, the 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 this uh, the United Jewish Israel Appeal uh, issued a statement said the development of policy in this area is legally com complex as it required careful thought in recent months. The UJIA has been responding responsibly to legal advice received has worked hard to develop a workable and consistent policy regarding the expenditure of charitable funds over the Green Line. The policy has been formulated to protect the work of our work in Israel, which includes support for the Israeli Experience Program, which is run in partnership with the Jewish Agency, and so forth. <clears throat> and the the United the United Jewish Israel Appeal says they want to remain neutral on the political situation. As a charity, can't promote any political position beyond its charitable purposes. This means that Jewish groups visiting the Kotel or other historical sites will need special approval prior to receiving funds. So a spokesman for the United Jewish Israel Appeal said that the policy doesn't explicitly say that the Jews can't go beyond the Green Line, but in order to do so, there will be an application process. So a tour organization has to vouch for a specific site for educational purposes. So the spokesman for this uh, British United Jewish uh, Israel Appeal said, 
Visiting the Kotel, for instance, will be granted. That's a pragmatic solution. Uh, he added that in the UK Jewish media, this policy has been misinterpreted as ideological. It actually is intended for protecting tour groups against issues. So, uh, interesting. The, uh, the, the, it, it's, we're saddened at the apparent anti-Zionism of the United Jewish Israel Appeal. The, they seem to ignoring the fact that Abraham's joint grave that he purchased for Sarah as authenticated in the best-selling book of all time, the Bible, is beyond their imaginary green line. Abraham's grave is in Hebron. And uh, that that's, that's very sad. The uh, interesting... It, uh, if the reports are correct, it's disappointing that the UJIA would make this change in policy that's completely out of sync with much of world Jewry who support the right of Jews to do what the, to choose where to live. Avoiding visiting Jewish communities in areas that were occupied by Jordan from 1949 till 1967 only serves to further fragment the Jewish community and denies their participants the opportunity to meet Jews who are often unfairly maligned in international media. Though boycotting these areas is complying with a policy that will make traveling to popular locations over the Green Line, and there are very popular locations like Masada and Getty, uh, it'll be difficult to do so. The, uh, the, so the, so the U, UJIA said they're working on a, on some kind of a solutions. They, 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 uh, they support the, uh, the, to ensure that Israeli tours are carried out in a manner that does not prejudice their existence, or, allow, or rather allows them to take place in a safe and compliant manner. So this is a very interesting, uh, Topic that suddenly United Jewish Israel appeal turns out is not too uh, in favor of British Jews or especially British Jewish Jews visiting over the Green Line. So uh, that that is very sad. Regarding visits to the old city, uh, that their policy doesn't quite make clear whether or not. People should visit the most holy sites in Judaism. So uh, this UK Jewish group uh, has a problem. I'll be back after the break. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. Where can you get the inside news on Israel? At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips. With scrolling news headlines, weather, currency exchange, Shabbat candle lighting times, and so much more. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. 
If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. You're back with uh, Jay Shapiro. And I want, want to start this segment of my program which is uh, something that is really under the radar, really hard to find. This week, um, uh, starting uh, on Tuesday, June 27th, and lasting until July 1st, is a holiday among the Muslims called Eid al-Adha. Now, this is a commemoration of the story of our Abraham, which the Arabs call Ibrahim, uh, whom God asked to sacrifice his cherished son. Now, according to our history, his cherished son was Yitzchak. According to uh, the Muslim history, the cherished son that Abraham was asked to sacrifice was Ishmael, his brother. But in no, no, no matter who tells his story, the last minute they, they were he was swapped for a ram. So the, uh, for example, my wife went out last week to, to have our car washed at a local uh, Arab garage, and it was closed. So she tried another Arab garage, and it was closed. The Muslims take this holiday very seriously. Again, from the 27th of June to the 1st of July. Now, interestingly enough, that uh, this Eid al-Adha uh, in, in Senegal, which is a country that has uh, 95% of the country's population is Muslim, on the eve, uh, as the eve of Eid al-Adha approach, uh, in Senegal, locals headed to an unconventional location to pick up the holiday sacrificial sheep. Where did they go? They went to the Israeli embassy. Since 2006, the Israeli embassy in Senegal has provided families with sheep for the, for this holiday. It's, uh, it's interesting why the uh, Israel's ambassador to Senegal made a comment. He said it's always an emotional moment because you can see what act means to the Senegalese community. Now, what happens is that poor Muslim families who want to celebrate the holiday, buying a sheep is a significant financial burden and often requires months of saving in order to buy a sheep. They're very grateful now. Uh, the uh, it's, it's reached a point now in Senegal that the Israeli embassy doesn't even have to publish the event. People are expecting it reach out in advance to the Israeli embassy. So, the, uh, the in order to mark the annual tradition of gifting sheep, the Israeli embassy in this 95% Muslim country held a ceremony on last Thursday with a celebration. Now, it's interesting. The Israeli embassy regularly hosts meals on Shabbat and Jewish holidays because there are a lot of Jewish tourists. And uh, 
it's a, ahead of each school year in this Muslim country, for example, the Israeli embassy distributes school supplies <coughs> and other school equipment. So what happens now, the in the head of this uh, holiday, this three-day holiday, the Israeli embassy purchased sheep in advance and distributed them to local religious groups and also directly to local citizens. So this is a tradition, and uh, this it's a wonderful thing. The Israeli embassy in a 95% Muslim country wants to engage with the community and promote interfaith cooperation, and it's something that is so far below the headlines that I found that this uh, article about it, uh, when I finally found it, it didn't appear in most papers, but it, in one of the papers it appeared on page 7. That's about as prominent as it gets, but really should get much more prominence because it is an outreach by the Israeli uh, embassy to a Muslim community, and that's something that we should be very, very proud of. Now, to go on to another topic, I want to say a few words about the fact that here, this year, 2023, Israel, are, we're stuck fighting or defending on many fronts simultaneously. And uh, these these are being analyzed, and uh, I know myself, I have a number of my grandchildren serving in the intelligence in the Israeli army. Of course, they don't tell me any secrets, but they tell me they're involved in many, many fronts. Uh, the uh, problem is that Israel has not really decided how to deal with most of these long-term national security challenges. It, it, it's, it hasn't been decided because of a mix of internal crises that we're having here. There are debates over being for or against the prime minister, his trial, and his judicial overhaul, which is a big issue here. The And, uh, the, uh, and also the fact remains that since 1967, since the Six-Day War, Israel has not resolved a long-standing debate about how to handle the conflict with the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. The, uh, and uh, it's, it's a real problem. You take, take a look at the West Bank, for example. The uh, Bennett-Lapid government had better relations with the Palestinian Authority than the present Netanyahu government does. But there's no, there has been no movement to resolve the conflict in a long-term way. None of the recent governments succeeded in ending the ongoing waves of terrorism, which go back for years. Now, there have been, uh, been some long-term suggestions of greater diplomatic moves and concessions on the one hand versus harsher and broader military action in the West Bank and Gaza on the other hand, but to date, no government in Israel has acted on these ideas. What the government does is to deal with medium and short-term issues as they come up. And that, that is the way our government operates. Like, for example, uh, <clears throat> when this government took over last year, 
What they're trying to do is end the West Bank terrorist waves. They're worried about Iran's nuclear program, Hezbollah's 150,000 rocket threats, Hamas's multiple threats from Gaza, and we're uh, essentially a war between the wars. They're not even, no one even mentioned security in the Egyptian border as a first or second tier issue. They're, uh, which, by the way, is interesting. On the Egyptian border, there have only been four terrorist incidents since 2011. So now what there is, though, by the way, is criminal smuggling on the border. The, uh, the, uh, the Israeli army can, can cite statistics around of a number of arrests and seizures of drugs They've uh, blocked over 500 smuggling attempts in 2022, and a general reduction of 75% of the smuggling operations. And this is what goes on. So the uh, it, it's a very serious situation. There is no long-term solution. And uh, the question you have to ask, while our army is uh, fighting criminal smuggling, and uh, you have to remember that these criminals are unarmed or lightly armed. And uh, the question is, what happens if there's a well-planned attack by an enemy who analyzed the, our army's weak points and whose goal was to come right at the IDF forces? And and uh, if if highly skilled enemies came up uh, against our army and tried to kill as many IDF troops as possible, there'd be a very serious problem. So, what about an enemy, an enemy who uses camouflage uh, or other elements of nature and uh, who, who watches the our army guards for moments of fatigue and boredom in order to attack? So, it seems as though the I, the uh, We'd like to think that our our fancy technology and our lookout towers will be able to catch any kind of force and be able to issue warnings. Yet, it's hard, it's difficult, because the terrain in the area makes it difficult to see individuals advancing on foot much before they get to one of the fences. So we don't see many headlines about things happening on our border, but things are happening all the time. Now, um, uh, the uh, drone and spy, spy plane commanders of the Israeli army say they can send a drone or aircraft to any border in a matter of minutes, up to uh, even up to 30 or 40 minutes. But the uh, uh, there was an incident on the 3rd of June, and a terrorist was not detected for around five hours, after he crossed that border. So you can't, you can't call in drones or spy planes who do not even know that you've been invaded. According to current procedures, no provision for strategic aircraft or drones, for example, to arrive at the Egyptian border in a short amount of time. So uh, the, the quickest that uh, any strategic air support could arrive would be around two hours or more. 
That means that means that the estimate of a mere few minutes to a maximum of forty minutes to send drones or aircraft to any border really means that the Gaza border, the Lebanese border, the Syrian border, and possibly the current wave of terrorism, the West Bank, are all very problematic. The, so hours of time could be wasted searching and perhaps in the wrong area. So these these errors have occurred. So without the intervention of the Shin Bet, Israel's security agency is not clear where the various um, terrorists would have been caught. Israel has agents, uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, undercover agents who do this work. So, uh, so the the question is, but we here in taking place like Jerusalem, where I live, we go about our daily business, thank heaven, in a peaceful way. But you wonder, with a concerted effort by various guerrilla groups on the borders, could be a possible problem area. So the uh, the uh, question is. Uh, what what do we do? So the, perhaps we'd like to think that the high command is thinking about these things. Now, the, the West Bank is the primary source of terrorist incidents these days. The, uh, the, the, it's, it's, a real, uh, it's a real problem. So the Egyptian border is secondary to the West Bank, with secretary, which is secondary to Israel's real threats, like Iran. So uh, there's unlikely to be increased budgets to the Egyptian border because the Israeli army wants to spend billions this year to be ready to strike Iran's nuclear program if necessary, as uh, as well on rocket defense technology. There, the, the rocket defense technology, by the way, now it seems like a never-ending story. Israel, Israel already has Iron Dome, David's Sling, and Arrows 1, 2, and 3, which are a variety, a variety of defense systems for Israel's sea-based assets. See, it's working on developing the Iron Beam laser system. As of last week, it, it, we know it is working with Rafael, a company here in Israel, for years developing an anti-hypersonic missile system. So, but but the government has promised a huge increased budgets for various pet projects, but these projects are the ones that the coalition parties want. The, for example, they want more funds to subsidize the Haredi community. The, uh, the Haredi community's culture is working less and paying little in taxes. That money that goes to the Haredi community, bigger and bigger budgets, is essentially cutting down the defense budget, which is, uh, that that is a real serious problem. So, uh, the, uh, the, the, it, it is a serious serious problem. It is far from clear that the governments have the budgets, the will, and the judgment to help to improve the lives of uh, 
of uh, of people living within Israel who are not necessarily part of Israeli society. We have a lot of Bedouins in the negative. So in the long term, the best way Israel can be more secure one border or another would be if it can reduce the level of threat it faces in one of the borders. Now, we have a situation now where Iran is working harder than ever to inflame multiple borders against Israel at once, and uh, the question is, what is the best way to deal with this? I certainly don't know. I'd like to think that the higher echelons of the government are thinking about it. Israel is under constant threats on multiple fronts. That's the point I wanted to make and what I'm saying now. So uh, our the question is, do we really have a national security doctrine to cover all these threats? I just wanted to touch upon this because it's something that's begun to bother me. And I, I'm reading the headlines. I read whatever I can. And I don't know if Israel has a national security doctrine. I'll keep reading to see if I can find out more information, but I just wanted to share my concern with my listeners. The next item I want to touch about is also way under the headlines, way under the radar, but I think it's important. Uh, Several weeks ago, the Conference on Jewish Material Claims Against Germany which is also known as the Claims Conference, uh, they, um, they revealed the outcome of its recent negotiations with the German Federal Finance Ministry and an unprecedented commitment, $1.4 billion for Holocaust survivors. This is substantial compensation and social welfare services. It's a package. It's a highlight of the German government's dedication to the needs of aging survivors. This agreement with the German government includes increased funding for home care services, extended one-time payments, and a renewed focus on Holocaust education to ensure that the memory of the Holocaust endures for future generations. So the the German government allocated $1.4 billion to provide direct compensation and social welfare services for Holocaust survivors. survivors. And uh, that is really, really something, something that really, it's way, way under the headlines, that is something that's important. It includes direct compensation for survivors, Holocaust education, uh, the uh, the uh, in-home services, medical transistance, transportation for uh, Holocaust survivors, one-time payments. So the uh, it, it's really something. The it the uh, we're the Israeli people involved in this. Uh, when they were, uh, you know, they sat down with the government, the German government, the uh, they said that they've achieved tremendous results. Were many, many decades after the end of World War Two, and far from waning, the German government and its people continue to feel a deep responsibility to provide additional care for Holocaust survivors. And that is really, I think it's important, 
It speaks well of the German government, but the very fact were generations, decades after the Second World War, and the German government still is committing itself of billions of dollars for Holocaust survivors and Holocaust education, I think speaks very, very well of the German government, and they should be praised for this. It's sort of surprising that this kind of thing gets almost no headlines. I found it in the back pages of several newspapers, but I think it's really important. It speaks well of the German government, and uh, of course it'll never bring back six million Jews, but there are other places in the world where, where Jews have suffered, and no recognition is given to this, but the German government has accepted upon itself decades later responsibility for what it did and speaks highly of the German government. Until next time, Jay Shapiro, signing off.